The modern world is an integrated system of almost unfathomable complexity, built upon subsystems, technologies, people, and practices that have partially removed or neglected sufficiently result in disastrous supply chain breakdowns, as witnessed in wartime or as the world seized up in response to an overhyped flu virus in 2020. One of the industries at the heart of the manufacturing economy is the machine tool industry, responsible for building the machines that build the machines, mills, lathes, planers, presses, etc., that produce the metal products such as cars, airplanes, and household appliances. Without these industrial tools, production would be relegated to hand tools or worse, and for national security reasons is arguably a strategic industry to be protected. As with most things in modern America, however, what is sensible and what is reality is at odds, with the machine tool industry witnessing a global market share decline of number one in the world at around 20% in 1981 to less than 5% today. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been ideal. Hello, and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. My name is Hans Lander, and uh, tonight I'm only joined by one co-host, Mr. Adam Smith. How's it going, Adam? Not too bad. Good. Good. Well, uh, tonight, given that we're down two co-hosts and there's no one here to talk about uh, anything political, we're instead going to talk about uh, something that really only matters to Adam and I, and that's uh, machine tooling. Thank God. You asking Finally. Yourself, you might be asking yourself, what is machine tooling? And uh, it's a kind of a complicated subject, but... Uh, Adam, what are your uh, what are your first thoughts on machine tooling in general and maybe its history? No, I mean it's 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 a drill bit. That's what machining is. You you, you drill things, um, whether it's uh, on a a mill or a hand drill or a lathe. Basically, you're just cutting stuff, making holes, grinding off uh, circular patterns or planing things, making them flat. It's how you make metal metal parts. And uh, it's, I guess, not understood today because America doesn't make anything of note anymore. Uh, it's all been, or a lot of it's been outsourced. Uh, let's be accurate on extreme uh, exaggerations. We do make stuff. A lot of it is uh, somewhat simple now uh, and services-based. The manufacturing that is left is typically in some of the larger industries that because of economies of scale still have sort of limped along and survived. But steel is pretty much, uh, in a very weakened state, uh, cars are in a pretty weak state given how much we import and how our population has grown. 
Um, but we talked to a guy from the steel industry uh, not too long ago, a uh, month and a half or so, and we he's a machinist. And he he was a little bit more optimistic, I suppose, on these the prospects for that type of work to continue. Um, I do not share uh, as much optimism, but I think uh, it's a very critical part of any advanced economy to be able to make parts because if you do like what the uh, the banksters on Wall Street want us to do and outsource everything and basically become a, uh, a retail and hamburger flipping nation, I think you're in a very vulnerable state, especially if uh, things get to the point politically like they are now where people are very um, out of work, first of all, which I think causes a lot of the political problems. A lot of this work used to be done by people with, uh, you know, very basic education, but that nonetheless is a lot of people. And, but it was enough of a, an income stream to support a family that's gone. Uh, and also my main point was going to be in times of war or crisis, like the COVID thing, when you have a supply chain that is dependent on a somewhat adversarial foreign nation like China. Uh, it's not smart to put all these things out of your, out of your house. It's like, uh, trusting, trusting your neighbor who has a criminal record to watch your kids for you when you're at work. It's, it's pretty careless, I would say. So I think it's a very important industry. It's not very understood because it's not a consumer good that machine tooling produces, uh, and actually the machine tool industry itself is actually the making of the machines that make the parts, but machining is making those parts. So I, I should clarify perhaps, but, uh, it, it is one of the industries that was talked about, uh, repeatedly during the eighties when Japan was making huge inroads into, uh, American industries and supplanting a lot of American businesses, uh, that were, uh, that was one of the industries that was going away. Uh, Germany also is very strong in machine tools. Um, and they make a lot of, uh, equipment that can churn out the parts that go into the products that, you know, we, we depend on and rely upon. So I think it's very important. The history of it, I'm not as probably familiar on it as you are Hans, but I am very keen to learn about it because I do recognize it as very important. Yeah. Um, it's 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 an interesting industry and it it's one that's very under discussed and I think it's under discussed because it's something that for a long time was taken for granted. And when people talk about the golden era of American manufacturing and the development of the American system as it was known or sometimes regarded as a by our cousins over on the other side of the pond Yankee ingenuity um it's it's a part of it's part of that wider vertical supply chain, and it was really what drove its primary success for a long time, starting in uh, the latter half of the 18th century, all the way through uh, the early 2000s, where we are now, and particularly um, what's kind of regarded as the the golden era of American machine tooling, from sort of the post-war period, uh, broadly the late 1940s through the late 80s, uh, more broadly maybe the late 40s through uh, about 2000. It's really the golden era as it's been described. There's not a lot of great literature on the subject, not a lot of uh, easily condensed, easy to find sources on it. 
the best prevailing source that I was lucky to find uh, comes from a man named Albert B. Albrecht. And Albert B. Albrecht is uh, by no means a professional author. He, uh, he was a machinist and a machine operator and a mechanical engineer sort of um, by trade and by training and education over time and eventually um, helped run and establish machine tooling companies uh, throughout the Midwest. And he wrote an interesting book years ago uh, called The Machine, American Machine Tool Industry, Its History, Growth, and Decline, A Personal Perspective. I would highly recommend this book. Uh, I only actually discovered a few days ago that apparently he wrote sort of a follow-up um, which I was not able to easily find. I think that uh, I found it on Practical Machinist forums that apparently there was an updated version of the book. Um, and these are very old posts from six, seven years ago where authors are, or posters are talking about personally emailing Mr. Albrecht and asking him for the updated copy. Wow. Apparently it's not uh, That's a good website. widely published. I've stumbled yeah, through there on occasion. If it's you guys a, are ever interested yeah. in just the topics of machining or machine operating or mechanical engineering or just seeing kind of what the industry is like from a more on-the-ground qualitative perspective or just learning in general, uh, I would say it's a really great website. A lot of uh, good forum and yeah. uh, interesting YouTube channel and good articles. And it's a good blend uh, between so theory and practice. I mean, it is still a website. Yeah. You're not doing it per se, but <clears throat> it's better than... I would say just reading a textbook because the the textbooks right. they're going to be cleaner and more accurate and uh, rigorous in the discussions of these topics. But again, they're they're a little bit uh, abstract from the ground level, and I think the problem is, uh, especially with our generation, is that we've all kind of gone through the university churn mill and you know they, they got rid of shop class when i was in high school which i thought was at the time i didn't even think about it but in retrospect i think that was a terrible decision and so we've all grown up sort of with uh, these devices these electronic devices and maybe software uh, development at best but most of us don't have any practical machining or uh, hardware experience that i think is very important to understanding a engineering system and this forum is good or anything like it automotive forums or who knows what chemistry if you're into that but you got to see what actual real users are talking about because then you're going to be able to wait what subjects are actually helpful when i need to make a living or just get things done like textbooks are great because they kind of give you like these formulas that sort of try to generalize things but they're written by people who just teach other people typically and they don't they don't have to they're not, they're not pressured by the market uh to really focus on the things that are actually going to keep the lights on so i think it's it's helpful if you're starting out in a career path or just trying to save money frankly if you're going to buy 
you know, a home uh, piece of equipment that, you know, can help you work on your car or something, uh, you can go to the, these forums and, and very quickly identify what the, uh, the actual user base is talking about. It's sort of like Amazon reviews in a sense. Uh, but again, that's like consumer stuff. And so if you want to understand uh, the more industrial, more uh, productive side of you know the society that is talking about stuff, great place. And forums are, are very good. And I don't know. I mean, I've heard people make friends through this stuff. I haven't done that personally, but uh, I just I just enjoy reading it, and it helps me uh, save a lot of time. Yeah, one of the more recent threads that I actually read through on Practical Machinist was in regards to uh, uh, Boeing, and interestingly, there are a lot of posters who had worked at Boeing. I think one or two actually currently work at Boeing. Boeing. And they gave a very interesting per set of perspectives on kind of the untold history of working at Boeing and projects they worked on and problems they ran into. And there were um, other posters who ran their own machine shops and they were part of the Boeing supply chain or they worked in a machine shop that was associated with the Boeing supply chain or um, and so forth. And, and they gave a really interesting kind of narrative on uh, what I really read as the decline of Boeing. And it's hard to really find that. It's hard to find those first-person perspectives. And that's why I really liked this book um, uh, by uh, Mr. Albrecht. I, I don't know if Mr. Albrecht is um, still alive. He was an elderly gentleman when I think he, uh, he wrote this. Um, if he is, I hope he's, he's doing well. It's um, it's a short book, and it's only about 200 pages of real content. Uh, several of those pages are um, really interesting pictures from historical archives, and I think even pictures of various old machines and systems that Mr. Albrecht took himself. Um, <laughs> my favorite bit of this is the, the back cover, where it has the reviews... And it's from uh, normally whenever you see uh, you know some history book or something, and the reviews are from journalists or book reviewer at USA Today or New York Times or New York Review of Books. We have um, Mark Albert, editor, Modern Machine Shop; Pat McGibbon, vice president of the Association of Manufacturing Technology; Charles Burkle, vice president of sales, Mazak Corporation. <laughs> so um, this book was apparently very popular amongst um, people in the industry. And um, in a lot of ways, before getting into it, I would say it's it's almost a love letter to um, not just an era, but a, a profession. And it's what, a love what, letter. What year was it published? I believe this, this particular edition I have was published in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah, it was this 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 uh, first edition, second printing, August two, so, twenty ten. But he was originally released. So he has a somewhat similar perspective that we might in that this is an industry that has declined substantially. But he's substantially commemorating yes. yeah, yeah. It, it at the very least. Yeah, and there are bits of it that um, I would say are uh, in in totality. The book is not some massive esoteric or super deep tome of 
machining knowledge. Um, I would, I certainly wouldn't go into it if you're curious in order to read about, um, how to become a machinist. Although you probably could gain a lot reading. If you are looking to go there, you could gain a lot. Um, and I wouldn't go into it thinking you're going to find conspiracies and find interesting connections. Um, there's plenty of small corporate history and company history and, and personal histories of various inventors going back to the 18th century. Um, but it's not exactly something that's super investigative. It's uh, it's really, I would, I would describe it as a love letter, a very informative love letter. And it's it's written from the perspective of a man who not only was a very well accomplished uh, first machinist, machine operator, engineer, eventually um, uh, operator of machine shops and the machine tool industry in many ways, who became kind of an icon within it. There's many articles on lesser known machining and, and technology websites written about Mr. Albrecht and his book. Um, and I think part of that has to do with, like I said at the beginning, it's really as far as I can find, one of the few, if only, semi-well-known and accessible texts written on the subject. Most of what you'll find were, uh, there are a few interesting publications that were written um, at some point in the 50s or 60s, and they're through they're available through MIT Press, although they're not free. Um, they're actually kind of expensive, shockingly. And they are focused on particular time sets in history. And they're probably more detailed. Um, I didn't really want to get those books, and this seemed a little bit more interesting. I guess another book if I had to rec- that I used somewhat for this um, that I had actually read a while back um, and that I really enjoy is another sort of primer book on this subject, which is uh, History of Mechanical Inventions uh, by Abbott Payson Usher. This is written decades ago, but it's been reprinted many times. It's uh, it's a very good book for a general overview of sort of the basic progression of um, of mechanical technology, and together they sort of give you um, a very good picture of uh, the sort of hidden growth behind the manufacturing industry, which is the pioneering of mechanics, and then beyond that, machines. Um, and machines are really just sort of an, uh, an outcropping of the mechanics uh, field and progression going all the way back to um, the first Hellenic engineers, I guess you could say, in, in ancient prehistory. Um, a more, we're all on the subject of books, a more recent book that kind of touches on this, although I would not say is um, as good, is The Perfectionists by Simon Winchester. Um, and that the subject of that book, which I thought about using a little bit for this episode, but it doesn't cover anything in particular that I thought would fit, um, is sort of a story of the idea of precision engineering. It's not a great book. It's, it's a good book, but it's not a great book um, for two reasons. One, it, it was written um, for a mass audience. Secondly, it was written um, in a very sort of anachronistic way. And instead of Albrecht's book, which is a nice, comfortable overview of both um, the mechan- of, of the mechanical profession, of the industrial progression, 
of actual uh, mechanical engineering, um, actual machine operations and technology. Um, Winchester's book is sort of um, cherry picking the best stories. And then it, it's it's um, far more kind of qualitative and it's it's more of a pure history text. Um, not to say it's not it's not good, but uh, if you're I think that generally when I first started looking into reading about this stuff, that was the first book that kept coming up. And part of that is due to the fact that it's more recent um, and more, I think, uh, more intended for general readership. But I would say that you should look harder and, uh, you know, looking harder kind of led me to Mr. Albrecht, who um, wrote this very nice little book that I guess we should kind of get into. Um, he has a very nice quote at the, the, uh, at the back of the book that I uh, would like to read. Um, a tool is but the extension of a man's hand, and a machine is but a complex tool. And he that invents a machine augments the power of man and the well-being of mankind. And in a lot of ways, that's sort of Albrecht's message, is that uh, the machine tool industry was actually very good for the United States. It brought a great deal of um, comfort and affordability and a new life to the average American and to much of the world. So getting into kind of the basics of machine tooling, um, generally speaking, there's about seven broad very broad classifications of what a machine of machine tooling generally they're utilized for metalworking and uh, you have turning machine turning machines so lathes boring mills shapers planers drilling machines milling machines grinders power saws and presses that's sort of the basic breakdown of where most tools fit in, or generally used to fit in, in the 19th and 20th century. With the modern um, CNC programming and CNC machines and far more advanced utilizations of mechanical engineering, those broad categories break down a little bit. But generally, that kind of gives you a good idea of uh, sort of the easy to understand way for uh, machine tools. Um, the machine tool industry is currently valued at, uh, I'm sorry, not currently, but in 2018 was valued at about $106 billion globally. Um, now, that's kind of complicated because the vast majority of, uh, not the vast majority, but a large percentage of the machine tool industry is effectively not American anymore, um, not even really Western. Uh, in 2018, China occupied about 33%, rounding up, of uh, the global share of that market. And uh, the U.S. was runner-up that year with 11%. Germany was 8%. But Are you talking most, about consumers or producers of machine tools? Producers of machine tools. Okay. Yeah. And um, the CNC machine tool, which is a specific type of machine tool, uh, is expected to grow. I, I think this, is, this was published back in 2019, obviously, uh, Recent events have probably changed the trajectory for a lot of this stuff. 
but it was expected to grow to over 100 billion on its own by 2025. And um, there's still large-ish machine tool manufacturers in the United States, um, some of which include uh, Kaba Ilco Corp, Gleason Cutting Tools, Omax, LH Carbide, Mag Automotive. Uh, ha- Haas, Haas is uh, pretty big. They're, they sponsor Formula One. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, so there, there's still um, there's still a solid remnant of that industry in there located in the places you would expect them to be located in. Uh, Midwest. The South, the South, the Midwest, and uh, to an extent... Um, Pennsylvania, New England. Um, and that's really where the machine tool industry uh, got its got its start a while back. And kind of starting here with uh, Mr. Albrecht's work. Now, also forgive me, I'm using the, uh, the physical copy of the book. Normally when we do these shows, I manage to find digital copies. As far as I could tell, there is no digital copy available of this book. Um, so you are stuck with the physical version. So if you hear pages turning, that is, um, that's me for sure. So starting off with, um, an important quote here, the most important aspect about machine tools is that they enable us to increase the amount of output for the same or less labor over the years. They've contributed to improving our standard of living. They contributed to our peacetime well-being as well as in times of war. The same CNC light that can turn a front wheel spindle for an automobile can turn an artillery shell. The machine tool industry is vital in both peace and war. It's relatively small compared to other industries such as automotive, aircraft, construction, and energy. Many large corporations report sales higher than that of the entire machine tool market. It encompasses some 180 companies around 35 to 40,000 employees with total production of metal cutting, metal forming machines in 2008 of $4.2 billion. But the numbers do not do justice to the importance of the industry, to the well-being of our nation, national security. There's hardly a product that in some phase of manufacturing does not require machine tools. Uh, And it goes on to say that, um, Machine tool builders of the past were old line companies, although they all had much in common. Nearly all were once family owned and small enough to retain the individual stamp of their founders. However, as they grew in size and became more structured, diversified, and were incorporated, family members gave their control over to professional managers. In recent years, the structure of the industry has changed as a result of mergers, buyouts, plant closings, and consolidations. The industry has fewer independently owned companies today. In 1965, the machine tool builders were the most productive, accounting for 28% of the total worldwide production. Today, that U.S. share is less than 5%. Now, remember, this was written about 10 years ago. So that it's actually, I think it's improved since then. Um, but when he wrote it, it was really the doldrums of, uh, of the industry, I think. Uh And he kind of, he goes on that uh, starting in the late 70s, the U.S. industry began to face strong competition from foreign imports. The pressure came initially from Japan, then from Taiwan, South Korea, and China. The U.S. builders were and still are faced with competing CNC machine tools of good quality at extremely low prices. Today, nearly 80% of our machine tools come from outside the U.S. This is not a good 
situation. And right off the bat, um, Albrecht kind of goes into a very um, limited history, but interesting, and I think succinct, of many of the founders of what would become sort of, uh, I guess you could call Anglo-American machine tooling and mechanical engineering. Um, we have people like uh, James Watt, John Wilkinson, David Wilkinson, Henry Maudsley, Thomas Newcomen. And these men uh, had much of their primary uh, innovation done before, during, or immediately after the American Revolution. So that cross-pollination of ideas between the uh, upper New England core of manufacturing and, and mechanic, early mechanical engineering, I should say, sort of at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution and um, the many towns and uh, centers of knowledge in England that were kind of pioneering much of this, they still had tight links with each other. And, and even after the American Revolution and the War of 1812, it didn't take long for that cross-pollination to kind of resume. And for a long time, the primary, I would say, uh, up until the 1870s, 1880s, the uh, the primary movers and drivers of machine tool ingenuity um, and mechanical engineering in general uh, were certainly the English, the Americans, and to a very lesser extent, the French. Now, starting in the 70s and 80s, you, of course, have the entry of the Germans into the scene and the very nascent and sort of um, unrealized Russian entry into the scene. But even beyond that, it was primarily a American uh, endeavor starting in the 1830s and 40s when much of the uh, both systemic planning of manufacturing and the machine tooling industry, the uh, sort of early research and development that went into things like drop forging, uh, you know, sort of coming up with the interchangeable parts model, developing high carbon steel for cutting tools, all these sorts of ideas were really being pioneered and then effectively driven to market in the United States. And the U.S. economy in the 19th century was so dynamic and it was so prone to, um, you know, very interesting and innovative small companies and of coming up and going out of business 20 years later, or maybe even 10 years later. And even if they introduced a whole swath of new technologies and systems and ideas to the market, they'd either get bought out or they'd go bankrupt. Um, and part of that, Albert kind of attributes to just the dynamism. The employment uh, situation was actually very strong. It was always easy to get another job or to raise capital for um, a new business venture. That wasn't too much of a concern. And there was also, I think, a more permissive ideology around innovation, intellectual property, things like that. And many of these industries and sub-industries of machine tooling um, were so clustered near each other that it was inevitable that they too would kind of cross-pollinate within. And it would only be a matter of time until someone would invent maybe a new uh, lathing system. And you would kind of see the progression 
from uh, like the Wilkinson lathe to the Hendy lathe and, and so forth. And um, eventually the companies that would perfect that would get bought out or they would, someone else would perfect a new type of lathe or a new type of system for powering the lathe at much less cost. And uh, this sort of high level of competitiveness just ballooned the industry, but it also ensured that there was a high amount of quality. Because as the U.S. was industrializing, um, there, there was needed a high degree of respect and quality for the machine tools responsible for cutting, boring, planing, and actually uh, developing every aspect of the supply chain for manufacturing. Um, machine tools, in a lot of ways, are tools that can then build themselves. You use machine tools to build, uh, build other tools. And there's a great video from a channel, I think called Machine Thinking. We'll, we'll link it. Um, and they have a, a good video uh, called uh, The Machine That Made Everything, which is kind of a, an exaggeration. But they go back to some of these early machines in the 1750s, one of which was French. And the idea is that basically the machine tool industry, as it was developed properly, then allowed you to repeatedly and more easily develop more of that tool in greater and greater quantity. And that's how you could kind of hit economies of scale, which is really what the industry was about in a lot of ways. It wasn't just about interchangeable parts. It was about developing an engineering philosophy and system around building tools and machines that could then produce more of those tools, more of those machines that could then produce anything you wanted. You could produce highly capital-intensive, large manufacturing plants. And you had some companies that only specialized in lathes or boring mills. And you had some companies that specialized um, entirely in um, basically setting up an entire stack or a piece of infrastructure for you for every kind of tool, everything you would need in the plant from the belt to the windmill. Um, and this was kind of a, a great situation because this stored competence that went down generation to generation with all these family businesses eventually allowed enough people to broadly know the subject and broadly know what they were doing that it was easy and reliable to find machine a machine tooling company to in your area this is before the internet so you generally had to seek out uh, or be sought out by a traveling salesman I suppose but you would generally have to seek out local catalogs of machine toolers so kind of moving on um, Albrecht makes a good point and I would say that this is well emphasized too in Winchester's book and in um, Usher's book and really any book on the subject and that the American uh, entry into machine tooling was really driven by the necessity for firearms and the necessity to produce firearms and mass. Uh, you have to remember that the United States had just come out of a uh, hard-fought revolution that was uh, nearly lost at multiple points. Weapons and availability of uh, high-functioning, consistent weaponry was one of the problems that America had experienced. And America had also experienced that um, 
when it was effectively thrown out of the British Dominion, its manufacturing systems suddenly had no one to export to. And there was a, a period wherein um, much manufacturing knowledge was, knowledge was at, at risk of being lost as the industry started went into decline. And there were this, uh, all these great discussions about the future of America, people like Hamilton, of course, arguing that it was uh, meant to be an industrial power and it needed to utilize the funds of the government and research to propel that and make sure that it didn't lose that edge. But firearms were one of the, in New England, the New England firearms industry was really the primary driver for both development of manufacturing systems and the machine tooling industry itself. And uh, even sort of creating whole new machine tool ideals from, uh, from, from scratch. So he lists a, a good kind of idea of the early American uh, arms manufacturers. So you have Springfield, Harper's Ferry, Whitney Arms, Simon North, Remington, Walter Armory, Robin Lawrence, Savage Arms, Sharps Rifle, New Haven Arms, Winchester, and so forth. And many of these names you'll probably um, recognize because many of them are still around today, if not in company, at least in brand or uh, idea. And um, they were all sort of started after the revolution all the way up through um, the Civil War, effectively. And you had some well-known characters who were involved in this, like Eli Whitney, the inventor of the... Uh, cotton gin. Of the, uh, the cotton gin. Cotton gin, thank you. And um, uh, this is a quote. So the government... So basically, Whitney... Uh, found out that the, the uh, U.S. government was offering a contract for um, arms and ammunition. And he got one of the contracts. And uh, he, uh, he said, the government acceptance was motivated, as one congressman said, by the desire to prevent the nation from disgraceful recourse to foreign markets for this primary means of defense. Whitney has devised a system of producing parts by a division of operations and the use of hand filing to size parts. This was a slow, labor-intensive process and used a method of case hardening and numbered lots of 10. It took Whitney eight years to complete the contract. The contract was only for 10,000 weapons. It took him eight years to build 10,000 weapons. Um, at the time of his death, Eli Whitney never achieved mass production of interchangeable parts. He received other contracts, but all carried identifying marks in the lock somewhere below the standards he claimed. And so along comes Simeon North, and after that, um, people like John Hall of uh, Harper's Ferry. But Simeon North is an interesting man because he really figures out interchangeable parts, and he's responsible for the pioneering of the, sort of the first machine tools that we think of. So he, uh, he basically ran uh, a farm. But he had experience as a gunmaker. He had been taught how to make guns and was kind of participating in that in the revolution. And so he took existing capital he had. He purchased a, a sawmill that he was using to make scythes for, uh, for farming. And um, he was able to kind of quickly churn out tens of thousands of pistols with a very rudimentary system uh, for uh, without in interchangeable parts. But uh, he was able to get another contract. This time, the War Department, uh, right after the War of 1812 started, 
basically realized, you know, we need interchangeable parts. We need this to be consistently done. We need it quick and we need interchangeable parts. That That is a must-have of the contract. And so uh, he built a new factory in Connecticut. And he uh, he basically took some money from a man named Samuel Russell. And uh, he developed a recognition for this new system of manufacturing. And he had government agents come out and investigate his uh, his factory. And they were all kind of shocked that he had sort of um, figured it out. So uh, in addition to interchangeability, North made major contributions in the area of machine tools. This milling machine was perhaps the most important. It combined a multi-tooth rotary cutter with mechanical guidance. The advantage over hand filing commonly used at the time was more productive, saved money, and produced more consistently accurate parts. In addition, he developed the turning of musket barrels on a lathe of Wilkinson design instead of hand grinding and special machines for shaping the gun stock. He also adopted the water turbine in primitive form, which avoided the problems of water wheels freezing and, a more, and developed a more, system, more efficient source of water power. So you have to remember that this is before proper mechanization and really even before hydraulics. And if you are running a... Uh, manufacturing shop you are heavily reliant on water current to turn a mill that turns belts on axles that then then turn machines and then you kind of operate the machines at those paces and you can kind of control the pace at which the machine operates that's effectively it but that was then of that in of itself along with some clever engineering philosophy for the design of these interchangeable parts um, basically kick-started the American machine tool industry right there because you have a milling machine and a lathe along with a way of broadly automating that process with some uh, human interaction. That is the basis of machine tooling is that you have a repeated process by a machine that with limited human interaction you can churn out goods at a consistent pace, at a consistent flow, with consistent quality. Um, so Simeon North isn't really a well-known man for some reason. That's how Eli Whitney is. Um, but And John Hall is, too. But uh, Simeon North is really uh, the guy that, uh, that sort of kick-started the whole manufacturing, or part of the machine tool manufacturing industry um, in the United States and in Connecticut, ironically, which is a state that doesn't make anything anymore. Um, so you have people like John Hall. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's not disparage the uh, wonderful hedge fund managers that live in uh, Connecticut right across uh, from New York where they extract all the money. But they have they have their pristine <laughs> homes in I think that they, they Greenwich, I believe. They, they, build, they build yachts and... Uh, yeah, they all, they all play Great Gatsby in Connecticut now. Yeah. Uh, so eventually you have people like... Um, Robbins and Lawrence, who uh, are uh, over at uh, uh, the Armory in Windsor, Vermont, uh, another state that doesn't make anything anymore. And um, they, uh, the most important machines that they kind of pioneered were a standard milling machine, profile miller, and a vertical axis turret lathe. Now, turret lathes and turret, uh, and turret machines in general are extremely important because it gives you that rotation effect that you need for more complex operations and it allows um, 
less human interaction and more creative human interaction with products. Um, and uh, this is sort of in 1851 when they're producing these incredible rifles. Um, and there's a the, the English Royal Small Arms Commission, for whatever reason, is invited to, to go see uh, American armories. And they label it the American system of manufacturing. And uh, the mission of the commission was to study the American system of interchangeable manufacturing and to secure the machinery necessary to introduce the system at Ensfield Armory. They stated the only reason why they, the U.S., are able to produce arms cheaper than England is altogether owing to the productive capabilities of the machinery and tools employed. So they... um, they basically start creating these machines. They're sort of one of the first companies to then not only sell their products, but they get in the business of selling machines and machine tools. Um, and they sell uh, milling, riffling, drilling, boring, and turning machines. Uh, and they sold uh, for about uh, $850 each. And they were even selling whole, whole mills for people. And... Um, the original plant, I guess, is still around in Windsor, Vermont. It's a National Historic Landmark, the American Precision Museum. And in a lot of ways, these guys are responsible for taking sort of a lot of the work that uh, Simeon North had done and then uh, making a precision industry out of it and doing something kind of remarkable with it. And there were, of course, a lot of other firearms manufacturers at the time. Uh, they got into this game of selling the machines that um, that they actually used to make their their armories with, but no one really had pioneered it the way that these two had. Um, and uh, together, these early gun manufacturers proceeded to develop new and improved machine tools and gauges to meet the War Department requirement for interchangeable parts. The combining of machine technology with the jigs and gauges for uh, Producing arms led to the system of mass manufacturing known as the American system. Uh, so going forward, the manufacturing of rifles in the American system could be broken down by the three basic elements. First, the operations were identified by the character of the work, milling, drilling, boring, and so forth. Second, individual machines were designed for each operation, including the milling machines that were essential for the production of lock and breech. Third, the machines were proportioned at the time required for each operation. The simple logic, along with other machine tools that have been developed, gave America an advantage in world markets at the time. And so this is another part of the machine industry, the machine tool industry that's very important. And it's kind of what tool and die shops are or used to be tool and die shops have really declined um but there used to be a tool and die shop in every town in america if not multiple ones and um the idea was that you could go to this this producer of machine tools and you could say i need this specific tool probably made from this specific uh steel carbon alloy uh, for this operation, needs to you know be run at this many RPMs, needs to be used on this sort of metal uh, and in this sort of conditions. Uh, produce fifty of them for me and retrofit them with these uh, special sockets and so forth. And the machine tool manufacturer, the tool and die shop, would say okay, and would then produce the tools at those specifications and quantities. Um, 
that sort of idea of taking producers of machinery and tools and then mass distributing them across the United States was really pioneered by the arms industry because uh, throughout the 19th century, there were um, a multitude of very large-scale wars that had, I think, really shocked Europe into the realization that um, they needed large amounts of weaponry and they needed the capabilities to manufacture that weaponry in diverse locations. And the best way to do that was to have the machines built to specification and then build an industry around first maintaining those machines, then utilizing those machines and tools to build new machines and tools. And so if you think about it, and Albert makes this point throughout, many of the machines and tools that we have today were made by generations of machines and tools before them. And there's sort of a chain link effect that is sort of indelible and you can't break. It goes all the way back to those early machines of the 18th century in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the, the early lathes of 1750s created the modern CNC machines uh, in some respects, created the modern manufacturing plants in, in some respects. And that's incredibly important because it's really the story of the American side of, the, of this industry. And it's part of what allowed the United States to excel at it. Was, the, was realizing um, the capability of actually sort of standardizing and investing in a machine and tool industry because you could then use it to very rapidly achieve economies of scale in building new technology. And no one had really thought of this in, in this light before. No one had ever really imagined it was possible. Prior to this, you were generally building a specific machine just for a specific purpose, and it was very haphazardly done. Many times it wouldn't even work. This is sort of the story of the early industry in, uh, in England, and they were discarded or used for scrap or broken apart. Uh, once their achieved purpose was finished, they didn't really see any more value in them. Um, and so they weren't built for general purpose either. They were built to such small and, and, and sort of meticulous specification that you couldn't really do much with them outside of their original intended purpose, which is kind of a, a drawback in a lot of ways. So as the, the armories kind of, um, kind of build out their manufacturing capabilities, you have this general spread across much of the 19th century. Uh, until you wind up with um, this exhaustive list that Albrecht put together of the 19th century early machine tool builders, he calls them. And he lists out 84 machine tool builders. I'm not going to say all 84, otherwise I think he'll turn the show off. Um, but here's some examples. Uh, Belden Machine and Tool Company. Bintz Machine Company. Cleveland Automatic, Bullard Machine Tool Company, American Turret Lathe Company, Loop Lock Machine Company, Dress Machine Tool Company, Hurlbert Her Rogers Machine Company, Ingersoll Milling Machines, uh, Minster Machines. Minster is actually a company that is um, worth keeping track of. Mueller Machine Tool Company, Newton Machine Tool Works. Cincinnati Machine Tool Works, Dwight Slate Machine 
company, uh, and so on. And the impression that uh, he actually writes, uh, of the above 84 early builders, only five of these companies are still in business um, today. And that's sort of expected. These are 19th century companies. You don't expect them to last uh, last forever. Uh, and it does speak to a little bit of the dynamism of the uh, of the industry. And so once the gun manufacturers had effectively sort of unshackled the world from highly overspecified machine and tool company usage, suddenly there were lots of people that could now manufacture machines to manufacture more machines or manufacture tools to manufacture um, more tools. And often in these companies, they served as sort of their own incubators of innovation and new design. And this touches on subjects like metallurgy, which is incredibly important. This touches on subjects like physics, on precision engineering, on more precise um, uh, mathematical logic, and trying to actually develop uh, mathematical analysis and systems analysis. So you can plan out a broad mathematical system for describing every aspect of the operation of your machine, how fast it goes, how quickly you can cut through a piece of metal at that speed, at different speeds, how much water you need to pump through, and how quickly you need to do it, what, what kind of material do your belts need to be made of in order to spin at this rate. And we take a lot of these things for granted, but this is all a big, big part of how you develop a cohesive manufacturing system where all parts of it are highly well thought out, it's highly scientific, and it's highly logical, and it's approached in a way that anyone can then kind of pick it up and start approximating new use cases for it. Do you have something to, to say, Adam? No, I'm just listening. I've been I've been in machine shops uh, once or twice, and the mathematics of it, I'll be honest, are somewhat abstracted away these days. The guys that I would run into were operators or owners. They were not engineers per se, uh, but they were certainly happy to have tools that worked. And the software today has gotten pretty good in the sense that it um, it visualizes a lot of the things I think you're talking about. Uh, CNC machines were, I guess, the first attempt at computerization. And what that mm -hmm. was really about was uh, just programming step-by-step step what the machine would do with specific movements of the control pieces, uh, bits, and, and whatnot uh, to create uh, your product. And the workflow of that, I would imagine, and I haven't done a lot of this myself, but the workflow is basically you, you have a computer model, uh, some Autodesk file, uh, or something to that effect. Uh, these used to be two-dimensional drawings, and that's why Autodesk would come to mind. But these days, uh, three-dimensional programs like SolidWorks or um, Fusion from Autodesk, uh, they uh, they have the capabilities to show this in three dimensions and actually export to uh, CNC machines to produce the the sequence of steps required to create the uh, the parts. And 3D printing is a whole different subject, but this is uh, when you're extracting uh, a part from a block of metal. So you start with a larger piece, you end up with a smaller piece, the smaller piece is your output. Uh, in the case of uh, 3D printing, you're sort of starting with 
small pieces and incrementally adding them together to get a larger final piece. So it's kind of like a reverse, but the, um, yeah, the tooling is, is very advanced and really all you have to do today is, is literally just draw out what you want. Uh, laser cutting machines uh, on two dimensional planes can, can do this where you just take your computer, you draw out the shape, you put a piece of metal, uh, that's going to be cut onto a flat surface. And then the laser, uh, laser beam will follow the path that you drew on your desktop and it'll, it'll slice things out. So you can do, uh, you know, like signs and, uh, you can obviously do parts as well, uh, with various shapes and something like that is actually very hard to do manually because if you're getting into very complex bends, especially very small, uh, tolerances for accuracy, uh, computer control is, is very valuable for proper measurement of your movements. Um, but in terms of the mathematics of it, um, you know, like, uh, calculating the trigonometry of, of turning the, the parts to you know, go at a certain angle, uh, there's not too much physics involved, but maybe some trig, um, you know, you're not really hitting things too hard. So that's sort of worked into the tolerances of the machine. So yeah, if you know, if you know, basically what you're looking to build, you just kind of feed that, that drawing into the machine and it can pretty much do it for you. I guess for like really complex stuff, um, you probably want to prototype it, test it out. Um, and if you're running a whole factory, this is where it gets really crazy. Uh, uh, Dassault systems from France, they actually produce uh, a full blown simulation software suite that lets you, uh, simulate the production line of all these parts. And so not only are you programming individual machines, you're programming an entire factory. And when you do that, uh, you have to start thinking about the sequencing of the handoffs that go between the different machines. And there's various patterns you could take. You can lay the machines out in different places. Uh, and so this gets into sort of industrial engineering where you're, you're really optimizing workflows so that you reduce the uh, waste involved in uh, unnecessary steps, uh, going, you know, in circles with, instead of going in a straight line, for example. Uh, there, there's tons and tons and tons of stuff you can do, and it gets almost infinitely complex once you expand the problem set. Uh, but for, you know, your, your starter machinist, they've done a really good job of just making this pretty easy of just literally just drawing something and then giving it to the machine and it just does it for you. Highly agreed. Um, yeah, I mean, modern CNC based shops are very different from, I think the shops of, uh, of, of yesteryear. And Albert even makes that point later on. He says, um, in the early 1800s, machine shops had sprung up everywhere. They had very little resemblance to any shop today. The average shop had lathes, drill presses, a post drill, planers and shapers, and possibly a milling machine and a grinder at most. The machines of the above builders were strictly mechanical with gears, levers, cranks, linkages, and without any electrics or electronics. Power was strictly supplied by water or possibly a steam engine driving line shafts mounted at the ceiling with belts hanging down. He even says that later on, the appearance of OSHA and its regulations was years ahead. <laughs> um, end gears were open. There were no machine guards, and it would be years before the industry established uh, safety standards. This, they started a, a general machine shop and capitalized on the system of manufacturing of interchangeable parts developed by the gun makers. They were not large and were first located in and around water power. Um, 
They were machinists, draftsmen, designers, metalworkers, foundrymen. They were no, there were no degree engineers, MBAs, or the CEOs of today's generation. They often took on an apprentice, and it was not uncommon for the apprentice to leave after learning the business to become the foreman of another firm or start his own shop. These shops were unique to New England, where many of the early machine tool companies were first located. Later, the industry migrated to Cincinnati, Ohio, and the Midwest more broadly. Um, and he, uh, he even goes on to say uh, as well, uh, it wasn't until the end of the century that electric motors, motors first began powering machine tools. Um, the, converse, the conversion came slowly, and there were still plenty of line shafts in operation well into early 1900s. A motor would be mounted on the floor with a belt driving a jack shaft over the machine with a cone pulley drive to the machine. Later, standalone machines with internal motors appeared on the scene. And I think that this is maybe slightly more what people are accustomed to now are mechanized and motor-driven machine tools that have their own internal motor system. But you can imagine a time where you had to sync up your machine to an external motor and you had basically a belt attached to a pulley drive, which is a super ancient kind of technology effectively. Just moving your machine at some high, hard to control speed that you kind of had to regulate on your own. Um, honestly, the machine tooling industry became um, much more dangerous, more productive, but much more dangerous and difficult with the advancement, early advancement of motor uh, motorization, because it sort of took away several decades of apprenticeship and teaching around the utilization of. Um, uh, I would say more calmer tools and uh, tools that were far easier to control and far easier to stop if something went wrong or uh, if there was some chemical process and metal grinding, for example, that wasn't taking properly. You know, having a, a motorized machine that you didn't even fully control the motor on was highly dangerous. And this actually led to a greater deal of waste and mismanagement early on in this, um, where there were, I think, Albert talks about this later in the book, where there, there was a great deal of time spent in the 1910s and 20s really trying to adequately rethink uh, how you designed entire industrial engineering systems um, around motorized, uh, non-sync, motorized machines because again you could accidentally waste a lot of material and you could um you could it was not necessarily intuitive to people how to use machines at such high speed and with such uh, such, such consistency and they had to of course rethink much of materials engineering and rethink much of metallurgy going back many steps to then accustom themselves to the to the new powers of uh of the machine um, and he does say that most of these companies, well into like even the 1980s, a company being kind of a broad, maybe in a legal sense, but we would think of them more like shops. Most of these were just small shops, although there were plenty of machine tool companies in a in a broad, like you know, above 100 employees sense. Um, but many of them were uh, family owned. They were driven 
mainly by um, orders for uh, certain specified products. They had repeatable processes, and they would specialize generally in very specific subsets of tooling. They would specialize in maybe general subsets of tooling for the dressing industry or for um, the more capital-intensive textile industry. Or they would... uh, uh, invest specifically in uh, machine tooling for naval shipyards, for example. Uh, and there were a few companies that would basically offer you the whole stack. Um, one of the first was a company out of Nashua, uh, New Hampshire, and they sort of pioneered this model, uh, Gage, Warner, and Whitney. And they're obviously no longer around, but um, they offered a complete line of machines, iron planers, engine lathes, chucking lathes, bolt cutting and screw treading machines, upright and swing drills, boring machines, gear cutting machines, punching machines, presses and shapers. And you could effectively go to these larger companies and say, I have this much money in capital from personal savings and bank and bank loan and so forth and, and investors. Please develop for me the entire machine shop I need. And most of the time, they were uh, working with large-scale manufacturers who were then attaching machine shops to their primary manufacturing center so they could have it all in-house. And you start to see the first signs of industrial vertical integration where large-purposed manufacturers um, or even the U.S. government or, or various groups would say, we need our own machine toolers in-house. We need our own maintenance guys in-house. We need our own engineers um, to work on very specific tasks that we kind of need throughout the year. And we will pay you to basically come set up our own industry and train up people for us. And they would. And again, this is another process by which it was just expanding the wider knowledge of this industry and of these techniques and driving this stuff to market so quickly and those early advancements really, by this point, uh, results in hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Americans in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, which is what I think what we're more interested in, uh, being comfortable with machining, being comfortable with mechanical engineering of, of some kind. Uh, being comfortable with certain elements of metallurgy and mathematics, and now you have a you don't have a highly educated population the way we think of it now, but you certainly had a highly intelligent and industrially sophisticated population, which was one of the primary reasons why America was able to build such massive industries and build a huge economy was that you had so many people that were so comfortable working on any variety of technical tasks that you created kind of a whole technical population. Well, uh, th- this is a little bit of a speculative statement on my part, but I think a lot of that came from the fact that Americans historically were living in very small towns and either you know as in colonies or in frontier colonies, frankly. And so there was a lot of demand for people to not reinvent the wheel, but reproduce the wheel. And they had to, it to be very self-reliant. And so the homestead is kind of a canonical example of someone who's 
capable in a multitude of tasks as opposed to a specialist in a big city. And the specialist may be more uh, economically productive, but they're they're less well-rounded, obviously, and there's a little bit less of uh, dynamism, I would argue, because having a broader base of skills allows for a lot more flexible uh, combinations to to occur in the network. So you meet somebody at a bar and you're like, oh, you know, I'm into this and, and that and that. And the other person's into one of those things, but there's a match. And if you are a chemical engineer uh, and that's all you do all day and then you go to the bar and you meet a guy who's a software engineer you really have nothing in common but uh, the network effect is is more pronounced I think when there's a broader base of skills and I think America used to have that because of the frontier culture and the smaller town culture where people really had to do a lot more themselves they had to uh, shoe a horse they had to plow a field they had to repair the wagon uh, they had to know how to hunt there's just a multitude of things that you were required to know and i think that created that uh that dynamism very very agreed very agreed on that point uh, part of albert's book and there's a little bit of this in usher's book too is just nice little company histories um, I think Albrecht is from the Midwest, and he, uh, he he's very fascinated with the the histories of these companies. And he actually went and interviewed and did a lot of his own sort of firsthand research. But he interviewed people who worked at these companies or whose parents worked at these companies, and they were able to give him a really nice little insight into. I would say a lot of companies that are sort of lost on people that people don't think about. Um, there was a Cincinnati milling machine. And people just called it the mill. Uh, and it was started as a screw and tap company. And this is when you had a specific company that only produced machine screws, taps, and dies. Very, very, very specifically focused on just very specific elements of that wire supply chain. But Cincinnati in the late 19th century and going into the early 20th century was just such a massive industrial powerhouse that you had hundreds of companies and high and then probably thousands of shops in the wider area if not in just in ohio in general that could support a super specialized and broad spectrum industry for all these different little pieces and you could have people um, specialize in achieving economies of scale for just dies or just screws and you could let someone else focus on naval shipyard production. You could let someone else focus on locomotives. Um, this that was really an, an incredible achievement of um, of Cincinnati and Ohio in general. And um, they uh, they kind of had two big um, wider impacts on this uh, on this market. Uh, so they uh, they had an innovative overarm support and counterclockwise rotation for one of their um, boring tools. And they basically came up with a new system for drills and reamers. And this really allowed them to then start selling this. And the company, I think, was uh, he kind of writes, was effectively dying and wasn't able to uh, buy certain products from other machine toolers for a certain need anymore. And, um, they were kind of able to get uh, 
investment from a, a Jacob Bloom, who Albert describes as a venture capitalist, um, which is a very modern term, but um, they also get money from uh, other people and they sell off part of that business that's um, making screws and taps. But because of their innovations in milling machine design, they end up uh, creating a company called Cincinnati uh, Millicron. And that started basically in 1970, but the Cincinnati Milling Machine Company existed for over 100 years because they uh, were very quick to uh, see in a very dynamic economy without a lot of regulation and that didn't have all this foreign interference and foreign dumping. Um, they could very quickly change business model. They could just sell off a whole side of the business that isn't working for them. They could achieve a new innovation very rapidly in less than a year. And they could run that company and those ideas for over 100 years. It's a pretty incredible story. Um, and there's hundreds of companies like this that are spread out throughout the United States. And a big part of the machine tool industry that was so amazing in the 19th century and in the golden era, uh, as Albert describes it, of like late 40s to, to 2000, um, it was just that no one was really paying attention to it in a lot of ways. And you could kind of get away with doing whatever you wanted. And as long as there was money to make an investment in something new, um, you could very rapidly invest and then rapidly deliver a new design or rapidly deliver a new product. And you could e easily bring it to market because you had these local economies of scale. You had these industrial clusters and you could easily start selling it to local people you didn't have to worry about shipping across the country or uh, or across the globe there were there were people you knew locally who would immediately buy your product um and so going forward a bit i don't want to belabor too much in a sec um so uh, there's this there's an interesting thing that i kind of found um and that uh, one of the first ever written, I don't know if you want to call it a textbook, probably a, a, uh, a, a, just a general guide to tools was just a book very well titled called Book of Tools. And it was uh, released in 1895. And thus starts this whole other side of the industry that's really fascinating that continues to this day, which is the United States has always had a very, very good system on how do we produce literature on a subject? How do we produce technical guides? How do we produce publications? How do we produce associations and, um, and professional organizations and knowledge sharing agreements and all these sorts of things? Really, not just building an industrial system, but building societal ingresses into that and egresses with that industrial system, which is very important to maintaining it and keeping it going. So, Book of Tools gets published, and um, there's a great deal of explosion in knowledge due to the publishing of this book, um, which was published out of Detroit, Michigan. And uh, Albert actually has a picture of it in this book and it's kind of interesting i would like to see if i can get a copy just for novelty's sake but um this was back when um uh books such as this 
would be given to young men at, uh, at a tender age. And it was sort of uh, something that was kind of like required reading almost. You, you had to have this book. You were, you were a loser if you didn't, <laughs> if you probably didn't know the basics of uh, machines because they were so wonderful and new to people. It was such, a, such an achievement to, to have them so, um, so easily avail- available. And um, Albert kind of goes into this. Uh, from the small beginning, American Machinist, which is a publication, became the leading trade journal for the tool industry. It became part of McGraw Hill in 1917. Um, American Machinist also played a key role in the formation of the Numerical Control Society, uh, which was sponsored by IBM. The NCS was formed when 60 invited guests attended a meeting in Manhattan Hotel, in New York, in 1962. I was fortunate enough to have attended this meeting and still have the card I was given as a charter and lifetime member of the society. Uh, and there are other trade journals that Albert goes into, but American Machinist um, was responsible in a lot of ways for compiling the new, really pioneered this model of you have like a industry publication which are very useful, again, in a pre-internet era in particular. And how do you get a national culture surrounding uh, a machine tool industry? It's not exactly a sexy subject. Well, you deliver it to people. You you basically package up all the newest developments and uh, all your local chapters for meeting up and uh, all the money that's sort of sloshing around the system, who's investing in what, and people order them the, the publication, they read it, and suddenly they're invested in the machine tool industry. And so before you know it, you have dozens of states. You still have the really industrial New England and Midwest corridor, but you have dozens of states now with their own machine shops, their own machine tool industries, their own tool and die shops, their own specialties. Um, and a lot of publications and sort of non technical systems surrounding machine tools are really important in actually getting people interested in, in this subject, I think, um, more, more broadly. And uh, just one other bit I wanted to touch on from, uh, from this book here. Um, Albert has kind of what he thinks are like the four big events in the machine tool industry in the 20th century. Uh, number one, the advancement of the electrification of machine tools, eliminating overhead belts, line shafts, and pulleys, driven by a central power system, first water and then steam. Integrate, the first integrally motorized machine tools appeared around 1901. Machines could be moved around the shop floor. Speed and feed changes were obtained through a geared headstock and feed box and it made machine tools much safer to operate. Um, second, the development of Timken roller bearing and later ball bearing headstocks that greatly increased the spindle speed over the old cone head rabbit bearing headstocks on lathes and milling machines. Number three, the development of cemented carbide tools around the middle of the century, replacing HHS, I'm sorry, HSS tools for turning, milling, and drilling. Um, they kind of came out right before World War II, uh, and these allowed you to uh, you could basically use this new metal alloy to cut and feed other metals very, very rapidly. 
you could suddenly machine cobalt, nickel, titanium, and a couple other high strength, high density alloys, I believe. Um, and basically, World War II, uh, the the industrial capacity of World War II would not have probably been very possible without um, cemented carbide tools. Uh, and so, number four, he says the commercial development and application of numerical controls to machine tools and C by every standard changed the way manufacturing process parts. Um, today, computer numerical control machines or CNC machine tools are part of every industry involved in manufacturing of every single consumer or industrial product you can think of. They have made possible 24-7 unattended operations. And um, kind of going on, you know, Albert has several chapters in here that are very charming, and it's about what he calls the golden years. And um, I won't go into it too much because it, it, it's very elaborate, but it's um, it, it's – it's nice because you kind of there's a lot of interesting pictures, but there's also a lot of just nice little tales about um, various companies again and various conglomerates. Uh, he does go into um, at the end of the 20th century. You take thousands of machine and tool and die shops and hundreds of machine uh, tool companies. Um, and lots of different industrial companies and consultants and engineers and research groups and so on. And suddenly you have a lot of conglomerates. Um, Acme, AMAC, American Gage, Amstead, Clearman, uh, Houdale, Teledyne, Textron, Tisa Machine Tool Group, White Consolidated, um, and so forth. And this process really gets started in the 50s, which is, which is the beginning of what he calls the golden era. So underpinning much of the golden era where the United States dominates the machine tool market, you have lots of innovation um, in, in related industries and within that industry itself. Um, there's sort of this specter haunting the industry, and it's the slow... Uh, over-commercialization and consolidation that he's noticing. Because this is at the time when Mr. Albrecht was actually working in the machine tool industry uh, at various levels. Um, and uh, and he, he writes, while I was with Textron in the late 1980s, we needed to update the Jones and Lamson line of CNC turning machines. Rather than invest heavily in machine design and the development, Textron sold off the division Waterbury Ferrell Presses and Rolling Mills, Jones and Lamson Lathes and Grinders, JNL Metrology, Cleveland Hobbing and Thompson Grinder for liquidation. Having lived through this period and having worked for a major machine tool division of Textron, I am of the opinion that the actions of these large corporations and conglomerates, perhaps more than any other one factor, contributed to the destruction and decline of the U.S. machine tool industry. They just did not understand the machine tool business nor had the passion of its original founders. They were not machine tool men and were not willing to make any long-term commitments to the business. And he goes on to write as well, what was most unfortunate during this period was that the executives of the conglomerates and companies that bought machine tool companies during good times or picked them up at bargain during bad periods were, were not machine tool men and did not understand the cyclical nature of the business. They did not have any interest in the business other than the cash they generated and contributed to their bottom line each month. 
the industry has always faced a roller coaster up and down market. And I think this kind of gets to the heart of what I said earlier and that when he wrote this book, uh, I think he, I'm assuming he started writing it in um, uh, 2006, 2007, published it first in 2009. Um, the machine tool industry was doing very poorly in the United States. It's actually picked up and there's actually been a lot of great innovation uh, in that industry domestically. We'll see how that changes given, again, recent events. But uh, uh, it is it is something that is very cyclical. And it's going to become more cyclical over time because the U.S. no longer dominates the industry in its entirety. Now it's a global market. And that definitely contributes to its cyclical nature. Also, just the general health and well-being of the U.S. manufacturing sector or global manufacturing sectors in general contribute to its overall um, overall nature. And so it is very much sort of an addendum in an industry. It's a very cool industry. It's very important to the development of the world as we know today. But it is an industry that also is sort of dependent on the world in many ways. It doesn't um, – it doesn't, it doesn't have the ability to just sort of exist on its own. And it doesn't have the, the capability in its own nature to sort of just sort of endlessly innovate and endlessly produce more machines and tools um, because if they're no longer going to be used or if in today's age we're just increasing such levels of high specialization so quickly, um, it's inevitable that unless the U.S. I think makes – a huge, huge investment in sort of retooling and uh, and really getting this industry into a new frame of mind that I don't think has been pioneered yet. It's just simply going to remain uh, very cyclical and um, probably a general loss leader most years, um, just kind of by its its very nature. You have anything to say to that, Adam? I don't know. I've uh, I've sort of lowered my expectations a lot these days about the direction of uh, this "quote unquote" country. It's it's not really much of one anymore. Uh, there was there there's a semblance of something that echoes of a once distant past that I still have, I guess, some emotional connection to. But the reality is, it's um, it's just another piece on the chessboard for the globalists. So I don't know. I, I've I've kind of given up on waiting for Washington to fix this. I mean, this year has been just complete shit show, and I, I have no faith at all whatsoever in their leadership capability. Uh, they seem to prioritize the military when it uh, comes to blowing up countries that pose no threat to us um i used to support investing in the military i wish that was more towards things that were more um industrial as opposed to military and yeah that's part of the mic acronym military industrial complex but you know it'd be nice to have some steel making that wasn't just for tanks you know, maybe some skyscrapers. I mean, New York and Chicago used to be unchallenged throughout the world in terms of just their impressive architecture, 
and not just the design, but just the, the sheer engineering of it, just the heights that were reached. And the, the problem is like, I, I talk to average Americans, they just don't even seem to care. Like, you know, you'll find a few people like, like us, but it's, it's just such a struggle. And frankly, it's, it's not worth my time. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to study this stuff. I'm going to pursue it myself. But in terms of a national strategy, I mean, look what they did to Donald Trump. I mean, he ran on these ideas and trying to bring back manufacturing and industry and working class jobs and how they treated him was, uh, you know, like he was a criminal and all he was trying to do was restore some of this. And, you know, they're a bunch of liars, you know, the way they, they accused him of things that they were doing themselves. Uh, so we have a criminal ruling elite. I don't know. I don't know if there's any, uh, way we get rid of them and keep the country that's called the United States intact. Um, I'm getting too old to really hold any hope out for that. It's, uh, it's a matter of, uh, who, who out there actually gives a damn and those people need to step up and in their communities, lead the charge in this stuff. Washington is not going to do it. Uh, they're run by corrupt financial interests that don't care about your local town at all. Um, you know, there might be some state governments out there that do have a notion that this is sort of important. Um, so focus on those politics perhaps, but, uh, unless you really can make any headway in your own life with this stuff, um, just don't waste your time. Like these people are degenerates. Uh, you know, we're living in the fall of Rome right now and the senators literally do not understand how anything works. I, I mean, the, the contrast with China could not be more clear. The people who run China are by and large engineers. They know how to build things and the results are obvious. Uh, they have, ridiculous infrastructure, uh, in, in a good way, uh, their airports, their high speed rail system, their manufacturing base is all world-class. Uh, and we're run by a bunch of pedophile lawyers who I would not, uh, give the time of day to, I have no respect for them. Uh, we do not owe them our loyalty and we need to go our own way. I think at this point, I agree. And I actually forgot to mention that um, uh, Albert touches on Haas. Um, he, he wrote uh, about it. Uh, the most modern machine tool plant today is that of Haas Automation in Oxnard, California. It consists of a 1.4 million square foot complex of manufacturing and large assembly areas capable of pr producing about uh, 1,200 machine tools per month, uh, CNC machine tools per month. And uh, it takes makes use of FMS and robot CNC machining cells and lights out 24-7 to achieve a lean and efficient manufacturing operation. Whereas Cincinnati, which was the largest machine builder of the 20th century, depended upon d diversification, Haas has remained a, as a single-purpose builder of CNC Turing machines and CNC machining centers. The simple approach has worked. And so in, in that sense, I think... With those sort of um, observations, and he does observe as well that there's been a few new plants, a few new plants um, 
for machine tooling, you have um, Fellows Gear Shaper Plant in uh, Springfield, Vermont. Um, new facilities for uh, Brown and Sharp in uh, Rhode Island. Um, Kearney and Trickers, uh, new plant in Milwaukee. Uh, they are all, uh, those are somewhat larger conglomerates and larger groups, but they are also very, very focused on very specific tasks. The same with Haas. And I think that in a lot of ways, the, the, the industry is sort of regressing back to its early stages. It's really gone backwards in some senses uh, 300 years. And it's not necessarily for the worst. But it'll be interesting if this is actually a sign of a brighter road ahead. Because, as I kind of noted in the beginning, 300 years ago, the machine tool industry was so highly specialized and was not very diverse, didn't have these clusters of innovation and industrialization. You had disparate places where sometimes a machine was built or sometimes a tool was made. And it might not even be repeatable, but you would use it and it would be very proprietary. One person would own it. Um, it would sort of like lease it out for certain things. Maybe it's a slight return to that. And I'm sure if you were in the 1750s, 1760s, and you looked at the state of that industry, it'd be hard to even call it an industry then. It'd be uh, just sort of makers of tools we use for one-off things, ad hoc things. They're not very important. Um, you would obviously be wrong 150 years later, but I think it's, it's worth realizing that Albrecht um, doesn't really end the notes on a bad end the book on a bad note he seems somewhat optimistic that uh, the industry while has regressed and has become under foreign pressure and has declined in a lot of ways it still has the capability to uh, actually produce products it still has a lot of engineering talent it still has sophisticated and smart employees and processes um, and there's plenty of room for 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 growth, but it has declined, no matter how you put it. Um, he does write that uh, the larger builders sold their machines through different through direct offices in the major industrial centers of the U.S. Detroit, New England, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, Los Angeles, uh, and in the South, Charlotte, Atlanta, Dallas. In Houston, but the rest of the builders depended upon machine tool distributors, who are members of the American Machine Tool Distributors Association. Initially, the distributors, for the most part, represented U.S. machine tool companies. However, as low-cost foreign NC machines entered the U.S. market in the early 1970s, many distributors, in opposition to the builders, gave up their loyalty to take on competing low-cost imports. The foreign machine builders often offered larger discounts, and their machines, for the most part, were lower price and easier to sell. This, along with the opening of IMTS to the foreign manufacturers, went a long way in helping the foreign machine tool builders to become established in the U.S. market. First real penetration of foreign machine tools came in the 1970s with imported machines from Japan. They were not thought to be a threat by the U.S. builders at the time. However, the Asian builders established a foothold in the U.S. market by dumping machines into the market at below cost. 
In addition to copycat machine models appeared without regard for U.S. patents. One of the most copied machines was the Bridgeport Series 1 Universal Mill. Complaints to the Federal Trades Commission resulted in voluntary restraints, which were not very effective, and administration's policies of free trade prevailed. By, the 19, by 1980, foreign imports accounted for one quarter of U.S. machine tool consumption. So it took less than a decade for a fourth of the market to get cornered by foreigners. And the people who were responsible for it were the government that was asleep at the wheel or deliberately incentivizing it. And distributors and wholesalers and members of this community in this industry who sold out domestic producers, uh, willingly sold them out and for their own gain, their own profit. They rose to 46% by 1990 and its imports surpassed domestic production for the first time in 1999. And I think that is why uh, Albert sort of regards the golden era as ending in the year 2000. Because after that, it's just in such incredible decline. Once you have the majority of the market captured, the, the, in the economic intricacies of building an industry break down very rapidly. And the domestic production broke down very rapidly. And it it regard it resulted in large scale conglomerations, which were uh, much more difficult to manage, and were uh, slashing their industrial products and their machinery left and right, or super highly specialized individual producers of very specific products, um, which does not which does not make a well diversified clustered sector, uh, which had existed before and was highly, highly successful. Um, uh, by the end of the century, imports accounted for 62% of consumption. Import penetration is equally severe in all sectors of the industry. Imports of presses over the last 20 years rose from 16% in 1980 to 78% at the end of the century. During this period, Clearing, Niagara, EW Bliss, Federal, Danley, and Verson, all major former press builders, closed their doors um, forever. The U.S. has become dependent on foreign machine tools in many critical areas. It is almost totally dependent on imports for gear-generating machines, large transfer presses, and CNC Swiss-type turning machines. The situation is particularly severe in the case of CNC turning machines. In CNC machining centers, imports of CNC turning machines in 2008 accounted for 81% in a market of $1.4 billion. Uh, and he goes on to list 184. This man is a hard, hard researcher. <laughs> he found 184 different companies and what they were specialized in producing um, throughout the 20th century. And uh, out of the above total 184 builders, less than one-third remain in business today. And again, this was written um, over 10 years ago, so probably even less than that. In many cases, the name has been absorbed into um, another company. Uh, and so the book is, uh, like I said, optimistic ultimately and has some, uh, has some good optimistic times in it. Um, but it is a, a somber love letter, like I said at the beginning, to an industry that is 
um, was so cool and so innovative and full of um, such rich engineering and, and rich systems management that um, has now really been lost. And in a lot of ways, America delivered this all onto the world. It really carried um, the the torch of engineering going back to the uh, the ancient Greek uh, mechanisms found at the bottom of the Mediterranean to uh, the Roman bridge builders and pulley makers to the English early mechanical engineers and, and steam operators. And it really carried that torch and then brought it to the whole world and in a very, um, I guess, Greek tragic sense, um, kind of suffered its own demise for bringing the torch to the rest of mankind. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, I think that despite having regressed very rapidly, the, the industry could come back, but it would take a large concerted effort at every level of our society um, to make sure that it happens because that's what it took for it to happen in the first place. And uh, unfortunately, as America continues to decline the way it does, I think uh, so do its prospects of a uh, of another golden era in uh, in machine tooling.